From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The government's housing policy could be dead in the water. On Monday, the Greens chose to block the legislation by deferring the vote on the bill until October. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the Greens' delay is the same as rejecting it, and he's seeking urgent legal advice about whether it could be a trigger for a double dissolution of parliament, something that would take us to an early election. Today, Greens spokesperson on housing, Max Chandler-Mather, reveals why the Greens blocked the bill, the conversations with Labor behind the scenes, and what he thinks could have gotten a deal done. It's Thursday, June 22. The federal government has a fight on its hands this week, trying to push its embattled Housing Australia Future Fund through Parliament. It's currently being held hostage by the... Those in that corner, Mr Speaker, they deal in protests, we deal in progress. They see issues to campaign on, we see challenges to act on. They want to build their profile, we want to build more homes. Labor is threatening a double dissolution election as the Greens team up with the Coalition to block its signature $10 billion policy. Let's bring in Housing Minister... So, Max, this week the Greens joined forces with the Coalition to force a delay on the government's housing bill, which is the the Housing Australia Future Fund, for another four months. Tell me why. Well, for months we have pointed out to Labor that Labor's Housing Australia Future Fund will see the crisis get worse for two reasons. One, it doesn't guarantee any money until 2024-25, and then only then it's going to spend $500 million and only build up to 6,000 social and affordable homes a year when the shortage is 640,000 homes and increases by much more than 6,000 homes every year. So at the end of Labor's five-year plan as it stands, there will be more people waiting for social and affordable housing than there was at the start of the plan. And our second concern was it does nothing for the one-third of this country who rents. And right now, rents are skyrocketing, and the Reserve Bank of Australia actually thinks that rents are going to go up even faster over the next 12 months, and every person evicted out of a private rental is someone who may end up joining the 10-year-long queue for public housing, which means that the demand for public housing will be expanding at a faster rate uh, than Australia is building homes. And so for those two key reasons, we thought it's not right Uh, that when the budget can find $12 billion a year in tax concessions for property investors, that the government only wants to spend $500 million every year on housing and do nothing for the one-third of this country who rents. Mm. And so this has been going on for a long time now. For months we've heard that the Greens and the Labor Party have been negotiating over this bill. But this week Anthony Albanese, he accused you of playing, quote, juvenile student politics. Well, let me say this. This isn't student politics. What happens here affects the country. And instead of hyperventilating like a debating team, you need to bring people together to get things done. In the past, Penny Wong said that by blocking this bill, the Greens were putting women who were fleeing domestic violence at risk of of not being able to find a home. You know, this man's ego, this man's ego matters more than housing for women fleeing domestic violence and older women at risk of homelessness. What sort of party are you? So I'm curious, behind the scenes, have you had negotiations with Labor at any point or is what we've been seeing in public, which has been 
I think it's fair to say, tense and confrontational at times. Is that the extent of the two parties' efforts to agree here? No, we have had private conversations. And look, for months, they have said it's impossible for them to find any direct spending for public and affordable housing. And it should be clear that as a result of our pressure, up until last weekend, Labor said there's no extra money in the budget for public and affordable housing. And then all of a sudden, we managed to eke out of them an investment of $2 billion right now that'll be dispersed over the next two weeks, not attached to the Housing Australia Future Fund. It's being spent and it's going to get start building social homes straight away. And I think that's a sign that actually the fastest and best way to uh, invest in public housing is to invest directly in public housing. That might sound a bit radical, but just like you're building schools and hospitals, we think the government should invest in that directly. And our frustration on that is that now that they've proven that you can spend money directly on public and affordable housing, why not do that every year and increase the amount so we actually start to tackle the scale of the crisis? In terms of negotiations, we're also obviously pushing very much for the federal government to coordinate a freeze on rent increases uh, or at least make unlimited rent increases illegal, something the federal government has the power to coordinate via national cabinet like they did on energy price caps. So, yeah, you're right. The debate has got pretty tetchy and I think it's sort of revealing some of the insults they've made. They've also yelled at me in Parliament and told me to grow up and and things like that. And I think that speaks to a, a really serious disconnect between, I think, the Prime Minister uh, and uh, the people in Labor sort of most forcefully making these insults uh, and the millions of people who feel like the political system has left them behind. And I think they think it's somehow radical or unreasonable to suggest there should be limits on rent increases or we shouldn't invest enough money so that we actually start to put a dent in the scale of the shortage of public housing. Uh, But actually, for a lot of people outside of Parliament House, they think that's a pretty reasonable thing. I want to come back and talk a bit more about your concerns about the rental market. But before we do, I mean, the government is now saying that it might not even try and pass the half bill at all. The housing minister, Julie Collins, says that she's looking at what options are available to us. So if this is actually the end of the line for the Housing Australia Future Fund, are you prepared for the Greens to shoulder the blame for that, for the loss of 30,000 homes that would have been built if the Greens had allowed this bill through the Senate this week? Well, firstly, let's be clear, the only reason the government is building homes right now is because the Greens held out and secured that $2 billion. On the question of whether or not the government is just going to walk away, that's a question for the Labor Party. The Senate has passed a motion that said that they will now consider the Housing Australia Future Fund bill uh, on October 16th after deliberations by National Cabinet on renters' rights. So if Labor really want to uh, withdraw it when the Senate is fully prepared to consider it in October, that's a question for the Labor Party. What the Greens would like out of this next few months is a negotiation to secure increased ongoing spending for public and affordable housing and national renters' rights that include limits on rent increases. Because if we do not limit rent increases and the Reserve Bank is saying that rents are going to go up even faster over the next 12 months, if you think what's happening with energy bills is bad, just imagine what happens when you've got over 8 million renters in this country, 62% of them in already in financial stress, and rents go up even faster over the next 12 months. How many more people will be sleeping in their cars? How many more people will be sleeping in tents, being evicted, moving back in with their parents? as a result of the government's failure to act on limiting rent increases in the same way they coordinated limits on energy bills. Mm. Let's talk a bit about rent freezes then. One of the biggest criticisms of a rent freeze is that it could actually reduce the supply of housing. So the theory goes that 
if a landlord can't charge as much as they want for a property, there is less incentive for them to become a landlord at all. And that's a problem because we need the private market working right now at a time in which we have a housing supply problem. And and it's true, isn't it, that a rent freeze, while it might help stop some renters being displaced in the short term, it does run the risk of reducing the supply of, of rental stock longer term. Well, firstly, Victoria had a temporary freeze on rent increases during the pandemic and two things happened. Rents declined for the first time in a long time, by the way. And actually, the number of private dwelling commencements increased over that period. Now, it may not be that a freeze on rent increases uh, increased supply, but it certainly didn't put a damper on it. And what's useful about that example is that is in an Australian context. Secondly, uh, the key question for a freeze on rent increases is, does it work in the sense that does it bring rents down? And the answer to that overwhelmingly, a lot of evidence around the world is where rents are regulated, rents come down. Uh, in Berlin, they had a temporary freeze on rent increases. Rents dropped by 8%. And in fact, the rest of Germany, rents increased at a 60% higher rate where they weren't capped or frozen. Now, on the question of supply, a lot of this is relied on hearsay and manipulation of a lot of evidence. Uh, a lot of studies around the world have found that, for instance, in Massachusetts, where they did remove rental regulation, there was no increase in supply a study in New Jersey uh, of a bunch of cities through New Jersey found that there was no discernible impact on the supply of housing. But crucially, if we're going to talk about the supply of housing, well, if a property developer doesn't want to build a home because they can't charge really high rents, and instead we use those that land, construction materials and skills to build good, affordable public housing instead, or affordable housing for essential workers, then we're the better for it. Sure, but wouldn't a better and perhaps less risky way to deal with this be not a hard cap, but instead capping the amount that landlords can increase rents? So one suggestion has been to cap it around the inflation rate so a landlord could only raise rent by 6 to 7%. Yeah, well, look, we're willing to negotiate on that, absolutely. And certainly the ACT uh, has basically a cap on rent increases linked to inflation. Ideally, I think if we are willing to discuss caps on rent increases, you don't attach that to inflation because you then have an inflation rent spiral where rents and inflation keep going up by the same amount and you have a really big problem. And so, for instance, in Spain, they capped rents at 3% every year in areas where uh, there was really high rental inflation. So, yeah, we're certainly willing to look at that. And look, there's a broader economic argument here. In some of the more recent Reserve Bank of Australia reasoning for increasing interest rates, they pointed to unexpectedly high rental inflation. Now, one of the ways to start bringing down inflation now, in the same way that the government concluded that to bring down inflation they needed to cap energy prices, is also to start looking at capping rental prices. And the reality is that the Prime Minister chairs a national cabinet right now where all but one of the seats on that national cabinet is held by a Labor Premier or First Minister and chaired by a Labor Prime Minister. And they're currently discussing harmonising renters' rights across the country. There is a real opportunity here for the Prime Minister to come take some national leadership, put money on the table and properly incentivise either a freeze on rent increases or, as he pointed to, uh, some form of cap on rent increases. We'll be back after this. The Saturday Paper's food editors are some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle and Karen Martini. Let them guide your cooking when you sign up to Schwartz Media's free weekly newsletter. 
The Food. It features the latest recipe from the Saturday paper, along with a selection of seasonal dishes suitable for all cooks. Subscribe today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, the Saturday paper, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Thousands of new social and affordable homes. And what the Greens showed in the Senate, Mr Speaker, is they care more about retweets than renters. They care more about TikTok than housing stock. When When it comes to the crunch, Mr Speaker, with all of the flowery speeches and all the rhetoric in there in this place, when it actually came to the crunch, when the Greens had the opportunity to work with Labor to build more social and affordable homes or to side with the coalition of cookers which sit opposite, they chose the coalition of cookers. Order. And it will show in the Hansard for Treasure all time. Max, you're 31, I believe, which makes you, I think, one of the first politicians to come from a generation that can't necessarily see itself affording a home that has grown up in this supercharged housing market. Can you tell me a bit more about how that informs your position right now? And do you think that most of the people that you share the parliament with actually understand how bad the crisis is for this generation? No, I really don't think they get it. One of the remarkable things is sometimes you get here the treasurer or the prime minister uh, or the social services minister get up in parliament and talk about their increase to the Commonwealth rent assistance and say, we are doing something for renters. It's This is the biggest Commonwealth rent assistance increase uh, in a long time. And then you realise that actually only a small proportion of renters get it, and those that get it are only going to get an extra dollar seventy a day. And I remember sitting there in Parliament recently and thinking it was actually a proper realisation that they just do not understand. And look, I, you're right, I've been a renter. Uh, I've never owned a home in my life, renter my entire adult life. And there's a visceral experience that a lot of my friends and, and acquaintances have had growing up together and uh, is things like copying an unfair rent increase and knowing you you can do nothing about it. I remember asking one of my previous landlords to move a giant pile of trash in the yard for a year. Eventually, we issued a breach notice and his response was to rock up the next day uh, unannounced uh, and start threatening to evict us, which he did then by refusing to renew our lease fairly in about three months' time. And what that means is you're in a constant state of uncertainty. You often feel like a stranger in your own home, a home that uh, that home my partner and I loved thought that we were going to be able to spend years in. We got kicked out of unceremoniously because we didn't want a giant pile of trash that included fibro in the yard. And at the same time, obviously now, I and I have it easy, obviously I now have got a really good wage, but it's still going to take years, right? And even on my great wage to save up for a deposit on a house. And for the vast majority of people, not just my generation, but also the people in future, like older generations who missed out on this, the reality is they're looking down the barrel of some the it is Australia on 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 many reports is one of the worst places to be a renter in the developed world, and I just don't think most people in Parliament in the Labor Party get that experience of no longer having certainty or comfort or any sort of dignity. Often the indignity of basically of having a landlord come and get throw their weight around and get them, and allow them to do anything they want when you often know you're on the right is just an experience I don't think they understand. And when we've been locked out of owning a home as a generation, and when the federal government is pumping up house prices with the capital gains tax concessions and negative gearing, 
people look at the government spending $12 billion on those tax concessions and not really giving renters anything. And I think reasonably start to conclude that we have a political class that largely uh, is completely unsympathetic to the experience of increasingly a majority of Australians. Mm. And Max, when we look at the the big political battles that have played out between the Labor Party and the Greens, traditionally that's been over climate change and we could go back a long time to talk about that, but why don't we stick with this year, with this parliament? A few months ago, the Greens were asking for no new coal or gas projects to be approved in return for their support to pass the safeguard mechanism. In the end, though, the Greens did pass that policy without getting that concession. So why is it that housing has become something that the party is willing to hold out on, but emissions policy wasn't? Well, firstly, I think we were able to extract significantly more on the safeguard mechanism than Labor has been willing to concede on housing. We managed to have a hard cap on emissions, uh, which was a substantial qualitative shift uh, under Labor's original safeguard mechanisms. Pollution could actually go up. Sure, but it's not the same as, as stopping new coal or gas projects. Of course. And I suppose to maybe to make a, a comparison, we obviously started with a demand for $5 billion a year ongoing for public and affordable housing and $1.6 billion on the table to incentivise a freeze on rent increases. I would argue a similar compromise from the Labor Party would be rather than $500 million every year, maybe uh, invest up to $1.5 or $2 billion every year in housing. And maybe they don't want to come to a freeze on rent increases, but maybe they negotiate some form of cap on rent increases, uh, as we discussed. That would mean the Greens didn't get a freeze on rent increases and the money we wanted for public and affordable housing, but it does mean there would be a qualitative shift in uh, what Labor's proposing. And look, for months, Labor has not given any ground at all And now we have managed to extract $2 billion that's being spent right now, not attached to the half, but that's a one-off spend. And there's actually, as yet, they still haven't shifted at all on renters and they still haven't shifted at all on increased ongoing fund. Not a single dollar over the $500 million a year they currently only want to spend on social housing. So I think really one of the questions, and certainly a lot of people in our party room have started to ask is, well, why are Labor being so intransigent? especially, and and we've put this privately, when it would be broadly politically popular for them to come out and say, you know what, the housing crisis has got much worse than we anticipated. We've got a pretty big budget surplus and a lot of extra revenue coming in. Let's commit to a few extra billion dollars a year on public housing. And look, while we can't come to a freeze on rent increases, in the same way we capped energy prices, I think we need to start thinking about capping rents. And I think that would be broadly popular. And so I think that one of the bigger questions is why is Labor holding out so aggressively? I'm sure that Labor would argue that it's the Greens that are, that are holding out aggressively here. Do you think that housing has become more important to Greens voters than climate change has? I think you can care about more than one thing at the same time. Uh, I think that the other thing here is that increasingly a lot of people who are, you know, whether they are long-term renters uh, or that layer of mortgage holders who bought a home recently and uh, their mortgages are really putting them under serious financial stress. There's a broader, broader layer of people who feel like the way the economic system functions now is completely against their interests and functionally understand that neither major party really has a solution to that. And so there is a broadening social base that the Greens represent, uh, I think, from those two social classes who uh, feel at the very least like the Greens are uh, going to fight for them. And certainly, you know, in Griffith and my electorate, 48% of residents there rent. Uh, we had a thousand volunteers. The vast majority of them were renters of all ages, by the way, but vast majority of them were renters who 
you know, increasingly this is a social base of people who demand and want political representation and changes in politics that improve their material lives and don't really feel like it's coming from the major parties and certainly not from this Labor government. And so I think there's a broad willingness across the movement and the party that it's time to make a bit of a stand on this. And that doesn't mean we don't negotiate, but it does mean that we just don't accept crumbs from a Labor government who we know have billions of dollars uh, in the budget ready that could be spent right now on solving this crisis. And back on those negotiations, there are many in the Senate, crossbenchers like David Pocock, Jackie Lambie, as well as people who work in the housing sector, the Community Housing Industry Australia CEO, who are willing to support Labor on this bill. They say that it's a a good start, it's a foundation that could be built on, and they think that the Labor government would actually build on it as well. So why not take a more constructive approach of passing the bill and then advocating for it to be added to? Well, look, a lot of them have been saying that for months and with all due respect to them, if we'd listened to them months ago, we wouldn't have secured $2 billion that's being spent right now. The other thing to say is I think one of the reasons they're saying that is they've reached the conclusion that they will not shift off uh, their current plan. And actually, uh, you know, even a lot of the people in the housing sector will, and um, David Pocock has said before, this is not going to solve the crisis. It's not even going to come close. But we've concluded that Labor are being so stubborn that we just don't think they're going to shift. Now, perhaps... Uh, maybe we have a little bit more faith that we can push Labor uh, to recognise that this is not a second-tier issue, but this is of the same order of magnitude, same level of crisis as they treated energy prices. And I think that there's this uh, question around, well, oh, won't Labor, you know, maybe we can just convince Labor to do something more in the future. And to that, I'd say there's no evidence of that's the case. The, The time to change legislation is when it's going through Parliament. You don't pass it through Parliament when you know that it'll lock in failure and then hope that out of the goodness of their heart, the Labor Party will change that in the future. Given right now we have, the Greens have maximum leverage, we've built a, you know, as much public pressure as we as possibly could, and we're still a struggle even to eke out just $2 billion for social housing. What, why would anyone think that outside of that experience, when Labor have no obligation once the part, uh, legislation passes to negotiate, that we'll do anything more? And just finally, we touched earlier on how personal and how confrontational this debate has become at times, particularly between yourself and and the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. I just wonder, would you say that you're enjoying this fight with Labor Max? At times, you do kind of seem to be. No, look, I mean, obviously... um and I would argue that, to be honest, I haven't. I am very careful not to make any personal remarks about anyone. Although I would note that that's not the same for the Labor Party. And well, look, ultimately, it doesn't really affect me. I, I think it does. It frustrates me because it reflects uh, one of the ways that I think both major parties go about politics uh, that does alienate a lot of people. Which increasingly, I think they. You know, you heard the Treasurer get up yesterday and start um, these funny lines about TikTok and social media. And I think it, it it's a juvenile way to engage with a serious political issue. And why aren't they getting up ra- raising the technical arguments uh, or the economic arguments why they wouldn't want to spend more money on public and affordable housing every year? I'd argue they don't do that because they don't have those arguments and they're resorting to personal attacks because they've lost that argument. Uh, and I think the other thing to say is... Uh, I find I often find it extraordinary that you watch these people get up and, and make these personal attacks. And while they might be attacking me, what I don't think they realise they're doing is alienating a lot of people who might 
they, they themselves be a lifelong renter or someone who feels completely locked out of the political system and watch someone get up, say, like the Prime Minister with his four investment properties and and think, well, and not make any technical arguments, by the way, why they won't come to the table on the Greens' demands and think, well, this is the sort of contempt that I feel politics shows me every day. And I think uh, it is a remi- it's been a reminder for me why so many people are fed up with politics because it too often resorts into this tick for tack where what would be good is that the uh, Prime Minister gets up and said, here's the technical reasons why we can't spend uh, $5 billion a year on public and affordable housing and actually start to tackle the crisis. Here are the reasons that I don't support um, any limit on rent increases and why I think unlimited rent increases should be legal. Fine, let's have that technical argument, but don't resort, I think, to silly personal political attacks. And I think it reflects poorly on Parliament, but also more broadly, I think it alienates a lot of people from a political process they probably often rightly conclude doesn't care about them. Mm. Max, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ruby. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very if that's, pro-therapy on yeah, this. If, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also in the news today, after 95-year-old woman Claire Noland was tasered, top New South Wales police covered up the details, according to internal emails obtained by the Sydney Morning Herald. The emails show that the original draft of the press statement that made the incident public included an admission that Noland had been tasered by a police officer, but that senior officers deleted the word before it was published. And more low-income Australians have run out of savings and are having to borrow money or sell their belongings to fund their daily spending, according to a new report by investment bank UBS. In the survey, Australian consumers reported interest rate hikes and cost-of-living pressures are hitting savings hard, with the bank concluding a mid-year economic slowdown is likely. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.